Now, 2.14, James 2.14 to 26, the relationship between faith and works. 2.14, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In this place, in the, the letter 214 to 26, we have to have a couple of major clarifications to understand the argument of the Apostle here. A couple of clarifications at the outset to properly understand what his point is. The first one is the word works. What does he mean by the word works? By works he means the good works after one has true faith. When one has true faith, there will be good works. And in this way, he is in complete harmony with the Apostle Paul. Because 2.14 to 26 is equivalent to Ephesians 2.8 to 10. The Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2.8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith. And he's speaking of true faith in Ephesians 2. Not false faith. James is attacking false faith. But back to Ephesians 2, 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James, his concern is that if we have true faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, then it will demonstrate itself, it will prove itself, it will show itself in works, the good works, or the fruit of true faith. If there is no good fruit, then there is no good faith. If there is bad fruit, then there is a bad faith, a rotten faith. It's not going to produce anything. That's his concern here. That's the way he's using this expression, faith and works. He does not... Just like the Apostle Paul does not, and just like the rest of Scripture does not, he's not saying works as an accumulation of good deeds to earn salvation. That is, he's not saying good works earn us a place in heaven, and he's not saying faith plus good works earn us a place in heaven. No, he's saying if we have true faith in Christ, then it will show forth in our life, and he calls it works here. Elsewhere, the Bible calls it holiness, sanctification, um, growth, good fruit. These are different words that the Bible uses to describe what happens to a true believer with true faith after his conversion. From the moment of true faith onward, how does he live? That's the concern James has. And the reason this is James' concern is this is one of the main attacks from the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil tries to delude people into thinking that you can be a true believer 
and continue living a sinful life just as you always did. That's what everybody wants to hear. Everybody wants to hear it. There are plenty of churches and pastors preaching that, either explicitly or implicitly. Explicitly, they may even say it from the pulpit. They may say, you can receive Jesus as Savior, but He doesn't have to be your Lord. Only if you choose, He can be your Lord. You can be a believer today and be saved, have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, but you don't have to be a disciple You can be a disciple later if you so choose to be a disciple later, but you don't have to be a disciple. He is your Savior today, but He can be your Lord tomorrow if you want, if you so choose. This this is the kind of distinction, and sometimes they literally speak in these terms. They say you don't have to be walking in holiness as proof that you truly believe in Christ. Yes, many, many teach it in different denominations, It's not um, a matter or a heresy in just one denomination or one kind of church. It's everywhere because this is what the world, the flesh, and the devil want. But James understands this and he's preaching against it. So that's the one clarification on works. The other clarification that will help us understand the passage is the way he is using the word justified. The way he uses the word justified. He's using the word justified in terms of visible justification, demonstrable justification, that which is provable to show forth in reality. He's not using the word justification the same way as the apostle does in Romans 3, Romans 3, 21 to 4, 25 or 5, 11. He's not using the word justification in that way. He's using it to mean, how does it demonstrate itself? How do you prove it? How is it visible? Both before men and before God. Because even God teaches that He wants to see it. Not that God needs to see it, but God is teaching us that it is necessary before God and men to see the righteousness, to see the works to prove that we are his disciples. John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. As well, John 8, 31. John 8, 31. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, who had believed him. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He's saying the same thing as James is, James 2, 14 to 26. And the same as Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. If we remain or abide, continue in the word of Christ, then we are truly disciples of Christ. But if we don't abide, we don't continue, we don't bear good fruit, then we're not truly his disciples. It's one way or the other. Let's keep those in mind as James seeks to undermine false professions of faith. The false professions produce feeble, fickle, filthy works. That's the point James is making. Let's see how he proves it. 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Note first in verse 14, what use, what benefit? Is it beneficial to anybody? Does it profit anybody to just say, look at that, a man says he has faith. He's claiming it. He's naming it and claiming it. He's saying, I have faith. But just because he's saying it doesn't mean it's true. Amen. We can claim all kinds of things, right? You can claim to be Sasquatch and you're not. You can claim to be Superman and you're not, right? You can claim to be all kinds of things. You can claim to know how to get to the moon or to Mars. And you can help all the billionaires trying to do that, correct? You can claim it, but it doesn't make it true. The same with faith. If a man says he has faith, but he has no works... Can that faith save him? 
So he's talking about this empty profession of faith. He's talking about those who claim it, but don't actually live up to what they claim. That's the kind of faith he is undermining. He's saying, that's not a true faith. You see how he's talking about faith and works and even justification, we'll see in a few verses later, that that's how he means these words? He's not meaning faith as true faith. He's saying if you have true faith, then you will have the good works. You'll have the fruit. And then the evidence of false faith. The evidence of false faith is in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? A brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food. We read earlier, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, with food and covering, with these we shall be content. Correct? With food and covering, with these we shall be content. Even John says in 1 John 3, 16, 3, 16 to 18, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Not love in word and tongue, but in deed and truth. The same concern is James. This is not asking for a mansion, these this example, they're not asking for a mansion. They're not asking for millions and millions of dollars. They're not asking to be put on a pedestal. They need clothing and daily food. So when people are in that condition, a brother or a sister yeah. in the local church, Galatians 6.10, So then let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith especially when it is in our own local church, a brother or a sister in need like this. We can't have this empty profession, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. How is that going to do anything? This false professor who names it and claims it for himself, he's also naming and claiming warmth and fulfillment in the poor man. But it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen automatically. His profession doesn't make it true. And then his pronouncement, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, it doesn't make it true. You have to actually show it. It has to be demonstrated. 17, the conclusion. And he'll do this, make this conclusion again a couple more times. He says, even so, even so faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That's the problem. That's the problem. If it's just on the lips, as even John said, if it's just in words, as John said, even here he's saying, verse 14, if a man says he has faith, if it's just on his lips, in his mouth, if he's just spouting words and it doesn't show with works, good works, good deeds, it's dead. It's not a living faith, it's a dead faith. Because it's by itself. The words are empty words by themselves with no accompanying demonstration. 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Someone says he has faith and the other, but that faith doesn't have works. And the other says, I will show you my faith by my works. I'm not going around saying, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith. I'm just doing the good works. And that demonstrates, it proves I have true faith. Right. It's more important to demonstrate it. Notice it says twice, show me, I will show you. Show me. He's talking about that which is visible, tangible, real, physical. Not what we just say in words, empty words. 
Now, as for empty words, verse 19, you believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You believe that God is one. You do well. Now, this is kind of sarcastic. It's sarcastic for him to say, you do well. You got that right, but how are you better than the demons? Right. You're, no better, you're not better than the demons. Why? Because many people can say that there is only one God. Or Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Many people can say that there is only one true and living God. People say it, both in Christianity and outside of Christianity. They say there's only one God. Both Trinitarians and anti-Trinitarians within Christianity, they say there's only one God. Only one God. They can all say it. The demons also say it. They believe there's only one God. And they know it's true. Because they have access to the invisible realm, to the spiritual realm, and they know it in a way that we don't know it. That there is only one true and living God. For that matter, the demons also know of a day of judgment. For them and for us. Matthew 8.29 Matthew 8.29 And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And in Matthew 25, 41, both the demons and the, those who follow them, because if we don't belong to God, we belong to the devil. John 8, 44, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We either belong to God or the devil. And it says in Matthew 25, 41, then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The wicked people, the goats on his left, the devil and his angels, they all go to the eternal fire because they are accursed. This hits at the heart of what is common in Christianity. You may have people who come out of Catholicism, and into Protestantism because they understand it makes more sense than Catholicism. In their mind, intellectual sense, uh, sense it makes. They understand there is more real or more biblical in Protestantism than Catholicism. And then within Protestantism, you may get those who come out of Pentecostalism and into a Baptist church or out of Pentecostalism and into a Reformed church. And they understand that there's a lot of gibberish and nonsense that doesn't jibe with reality in Pentecostalism. They see that it's not real. These people are not really performing miracles, yet they're claiming it. These people are not getting millions of dollars in the bank the next day or the next week, though they are praying for it. And they're praying for all kinds of wild things. Speaking in tongues. Everybody is not really speaking in tongues. It's not these kinds of things, miracles, they're not really happening. It doesn't make sense. They're a bunch of liars. But then they come and come to a church, let's say a Baptist church, a Bible church, or a Reformed church, and they say, well, this makes more sense. Okay, in their mind, it makes more sense. Intellectually, they can grant mental assent. And like I said at the outset of this section of the study, People think you can just have a difference of opinion, change of opinion. You used to think the Bible was fiction. Now you believe it's fact. You used to think that everybody had to speak in tongues, but now you don't believe in that. You used to think Jesus was just a man, but now you believe he's the eternal son of God, possesses deity. You can have a change. You never believed in the resurrection or miracles. Now you believe he did rise from the dead. Intellectually, factually, mentally, you assent to what is actually true in the Bible. Well, that's good to an extent. But as James says it in his sarcastic way, you believe that God is one, you do well. Okay, that's better than saying that there is no God. That's better than saying that Jesus was a mere man. That's better than saying Jesus never rose from the dead. Yes, in that way, superficially it's better. 
But if you don't actually believe it so that it changes you, you're no good. If you don't begin to live a godly life, the doctrine conforming to godliness, 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, if it doesn't produce godliness, 2 Peter 1, 1-11, if it's not producing the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22-23, if it's not producing any of these, then it's worthless. And in fact... We who only understand intellectually what's in the Bible, but don't obey it, we are worse, worse than demons. Yep. You know why we're worse than demons? Because the demons will at least shudder. The demons will at least shudder. They will tremble and shake at the thought of the righteous, imminent judgment of God on the day of judgment. Right. But these people who think that they've, in their mind, figured out what the Bible's all about but have no desire to live a holy life, these people are worse than the demons because they don't live with the fear of God every day. They're not preparing themselves to meet God on the day of judgment. They're just happy in doing whatever they feel like doing in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, thinking that when they die, they'll be just fine. He says the demons shudder. And then he calls them in verse 20 foolish. But are you willing to recognize... You foolish fellow, you foolish fellow, or you empty man, foolish fellow, empty man, that faith without works is useless. You are fooling yourself and fooling others, but you're not fooling me, James is saying, and you're not fooling God. And it's most important that you not fool God and think that you're just fine. He's returning to this point of verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Right. Don't be deluded by your own lies. Don't delude. Because your faith without works is useless. No forgiveness of sins, no salvation, no eternal life, no presence of the Lord forever and ever. Nothing like that. Only the lake of fire. 21 to 25, two examples. The first example is Abraham in 21 to 23. 21 to 23, Abraham. The second example in verse 25 is Rahab. And it's not a mistake that he has chosen Abraham and Rahab. He's chosen a man and a woman. He's chosen Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and he's chosen Rahab, who was of a pagan nation. She was from the Canaanites. She lived in Jericho, and Joshua and his messengers spared her and her family. Also, she worshipped idols, and up to that point, she in her life was worshipping idols, and what was her occupation, if we want to call it that? She was a harlot, a prostitute, to that point. Abraham also, according to Joshua 24, 2-3, he, Abraham, used to worship idols in in Ur of the Chaldeans until the Lord saved him out of that. He worshipped idols, just like Rahab used to worship idols. Rahab also, though, she had this notorious um, sin of harlotry. That's what she did. And notice she's still called that. So... And Abraham, if we read in Genesis 12 and 13, he was very wealthy. Genesis 12 and 13, very wealthy. Typically, harlots are not wealthy. They're not wealthy. And this is perfectly exemplifying James' point from chapter 2, 1 to 13. He's dealing with true faith, whether it's a rich man or a poor man. The issue is, do they have true faith? And are we treating them equally, impartially, because they have true faith? If the rich man does not have true faith, the poor man does, then we ought to give attention to the poor man because of his faith. 
in terms of if there's a disagreement, we ought to say to the poor man, well, appeal to him and say, what does the Bible say about that? And the rich man, we have to call him to repentance. But if it's the reverse, the rich man could have faith and the poor man not have faith. That also is the case. Like Isaiah 9, 17, which teaches that God will not even have mercy on the widows and the orphans because every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Isaiah 9, 17. The issue is not the status before God, uh, physical status or monetary status. The issue is whether they have true faith. That's the point of the whole Bible, and that's what James is showing here. So now first, Abraham, 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father? Abraham our father. He means physical father, ancient uh, father and father of the nation. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, justified by works, does he mean, like we said earlier, justified visibly, demonstrably, before men and God, is there physical, visible proof? If, if that's what he means, we, we have to take it that way, because if he doesn't mean it that way, he is going to contradict himself. Right. And we're going to notice that by the time we get to verse 23. Was he justified in terms of proof and demonstration by works? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now when did that happen? It happened in Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham was at least 100 years old at that point in Genesis chapter 22. However, according to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and entered the land of Canaan. Genesis 12 and verse 4. But according to Acts 7, 1 to 4, Abraham was saved when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Before he migrated to Haran, legally, and then migrated to Canaan, legally. You see, he was already a believer in Ur of the Chaldeans, in Mesopotamia, southern Mesopotamia, in Babylon, or Chaldea. He was a believer then. He was raised as an unbeliever, worshiping idols, but at a point in life, became a believer, then migrated to Haran, and then the land of Canaan. 75 years old in Genesis 12, verse 4. But in Genesis 22, after the birth of Isaac, he was at least 100 years old probably 125 years old in Genesis 22. So then, when James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? He doesn't mean that's when Abraham was saved. Right. He doesn't mean that's when Abraham was saved. He cannot mean that, and we'll see in a moment. Verse 22, he makes his point. You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Faith was working with his works. Faith and works. So true faith and true works together, and this is how faith is perfected. Hebrews 11, Hebrews eleven seventeen. 11:17 to 19. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. In these verses 11:17 to 19 we're also dealing primarily with Genesis 22, when Abraham was probably 125 years old. And if that's the case, in Hebrews 11:8, 8, 
It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. That's when he left Ur to go to Haran and then Canaan. Hebrews 11.8 is saying he had faith way back then. Right. Way back then to leave. To leave Babylonia and to go to Haran in northern Mesopotamia and then come south to the land of Canaan. Faith was working with his works. Galatians 5, Galatians 5 and verse 6. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith works. Faith is not idle. It's not impotent. Faith works. It's energetic. Faith produces something. And that's the same thing James says here. Faith was perfected. And by perfected, he means it has come to fruition. Faith has come to fruition. It has come to a point of completeness. That's what he means by faith being perfected. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The scripture was fulfilled. This is Genesis 15.6. James 2.23 is quoting Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6, this happened also after Abraham entered the land of Canaan, or the statement was recorded or mentioned, after he entered the land of Canaan, so he was at least 75 years old, he's in the land of Canaan, and the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was already a believer, already reckoned righteous. If he was already a believer and reckoned righteous, he did not become a believer years later in Genesis 22 when he offered up Isaac on the altar. He was already a believer. The key phrase there is the scripture was fulfilled. And he means it this way. That which was declared of him to be true of him internally was demonstrated externally when he offered up Isaac on the altar. In terms of his illustrations, of course, there were other occasions in Abraham's life where his true faith manifested itself, which is evident in Hebrews 11, 8 to 19, because he mentions several of them in Hebrews 11, 8 to 19. But in terms of James' argument that the scripture was fulfilled, yes, Genesis 15, 6, that which is implicit or internal to Abraham was manifested in the most extreme example that would have impacted Abraham's life in Genesis 22 when God tested him and, and commanded him to put Isaac on the altar. That's what he means. The scripture was fulfilled. The faith declared of him in 15.6 showed itself, proved itself in Genesis 22.1-18. That's his point. And he was called the friend of God. And he was called the friend of God. He doesn't mean God needed a friend or God needs friends. But he is saying that his relationship to the Lord is not one of animosity, not one of disdain. God doesn't stiff arm Abraham, but Abraham is a friend of God, the friend of God. First, it was declared to be the case in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and then Isaiah 41, verse 8. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 41, verse 8. In 2 Chronicles 20, it's in the time of Jehoshaphat, which would have been about 840 B.C., 
And then in Isaiah, Isaiah would have been about 700 B.C. They both declare that Abraham was the friend of God. If we claim a relationship with the Lord, a personal relationship, people these days speak of a personal relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, let's use friend of God, friend of God. Let's supplant that cliche, personal relationship with Jesus. Let's supplant it, undermine it, and use a biblical phrase, the friend of God. Okay, if we're going to be the friend of God, then we should live like Abraham. Right. We should live like Rahab. We should live like all the other righteous in Hebrews 11, who by faith demonstrated their faith by their works. That's even the point of all of Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah constructed the ark, right? By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice, correct? By faith, Jacob blessed his two sons, right? By faith, uh, Moses left Egypt, so on. Even by faith, Rahab is mentioned there in Hebrews 11 and verse 31. So if we're the friend of God and not his enemies, who's the enemy of God? All unbelievers, the wrath of God abides on them, Romans 1, 18. Romans 5, 9, and 10, we were hostile and we were enemies of God. Romans 5, 9, and 10. We were hostile and we were enemies of God. But in Christ, we become the friend of God. And it's proven that we are in Christ by the way we live. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. God considers empty professors of faith detestable. He hates them. Titus 1.16, in the New Testament. Yes, God hates people in the New Testament. Titus 1.16, they are detestable to Him. They are His enemies. Disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And that worthlessness is also challenged here or mentioned here. Remember, he said that it is in verse 16, what use is that? And verse 14, what use is it? And in chapter 2, verse 20, with faith without works is useless. He's driving home the point. It's unprofitable, it's useless, it's futile. Don't claim it with no works, no, no good deeds. We are enemies of God, not his friends. So he concludes in 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, those who distort this passage, when they say not, when he says not by faith alone, they say, aha, in the time of the Reformation, it, they said by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, right? They kept saying alone, alone, alone. And the attackers, Catholics and others, and even today, Many Protestants and many in the Reformed churches say it's not by faith alone. But James is saying here, he's talking about empty faith. Right. He's talking about empty faith. If you, have, if you have empty faith and you have no works, you're not justified. Right. You're not proving that you belong to God, that you are a friend of God. You're proving the opposite. That's the kind of but not by faith alone he means. He's saying it just like he said in 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? He's attacking false faith and demonstrating true faith. And the true faith is in Abraham and Rahab. 25, verse 25. And in the same way, there he equates Abraham and Rahab. Isn't that amazing? He equates Abraham and Rahab. We wouldn't have done that. The flesh wouldn't have done that. 
But God does. And here the apostle. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab the harlot. Notice she is named even though her background was notorious. The Bible does not suppress names. Even of the redeemed, it does not suppress their name. We might mention others too. How about Paul? Paul the Apostle. Wasn't he notorious? Notoriously wicked? But we know his name. And he even records, and Luke records, his evil deeds in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians. It does, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it records his evil deeds. The same with Rahab, Joshua chapter 2. It explains who she was. And in Hebrews 11.31, which confirms the point James makes here, that she had true faith, Hebrews 11.31, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish, along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. In in Joshua 2, Joshua 2, she welcomed the spies sent by Joshua in peace. She protected them, granted them safety, and then they left. They returned to Joshua, the camp of Joshua, and later invaded Jericho. And as they agreed, they spared her and her family because of the scarlet thread. They spared, and she says that she understands and believes. Joshua chapter 2. Notice what she says. What she says, but then it's proven by her deeds. Joshua 2. 2 verse... We'll read 2 verses 8 to 14. 2, 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And there, 17 and 18, the cord. 17, And the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. They did so, and accordingly, they were spared. In chapter 6, Joshua 6, Joshua 6, 6.17, And the city shall be under the ban, It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. 6.25. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And according to Matthew 1, verse 5, Salmon in Israel married Rahab, and their son was Boaz. Salmon 
married Rahab, according to Matthew 1.5, and their son was Boaz. In Ruth 4, Ruth 4, 17 to 22, the genealogy is given from Boaz to David. And why David? King David, because he's the ancestor of Christ. That's why Christ is called the son of David. So this is the Rahab. We should also remember here something. She's called the harlot. Yeah. Rahab the harlot. Just like we still know about Paul's notori- no- notorious wicked deeds, we also know about her reputation before her conversion. Right. Why? Is Paul's recorded so that we might downgrade him or dishonor him? Nope. No. Is hers recorded here that we might dishonor Rahab? No. Nope. James is doing the opposite. Right. Hebrews 11.31 is doing the opposite. What's the point of mentioning them? What would be the point of mentioning anybody's wicked background? To to demonstrate the salvation of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, who changed the sinner to be a saint in Christ, by faith in Christ. So she's no longer that way. I just said she married Salmon, and their son was Boaz, an ancestor of David. Boaz married Ruth. So that's the point of mentioning that she's Rahab the harlot. That, that's needed. Why? Because people say, no, don't mention the past. Don't mention sin. Don't mention the past. Just be positive and look, at, look to the future. Just be positive. Don't be negative. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the past. The Bible doesn't have that approach. So, Conclusion, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Is that true? Is it true that the body without the spirit is dead? What happens when the spirit leaves the body? We die. We die. This is Old and New Testament. The Spirit, the body without the Spirit, it dies. Genesis, Genesis 35, 18. Genesis 35, 18. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. She died, and they buried her there near Bethlehem. That's Genesis 35, 18, when Rachel died. In Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. 7.59. When they were stoning Stephen to death. Acts 7.59. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this in against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. To fall asleep means what? To die. And it says in chapter 8, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, and some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. His body died, he fell asleep, and then they buried his body. But his spirit went where? 759. Went to be with the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Philippians 1, Philippians 1, 21 to 24. Philippians 1, 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He says, to depart and be with Christ. What happened to Rachel? Her soul departed. It left her body. 
Even Paul, if he were to die, his spirit or soul would leave his body and his body would be buried and his spirit go to be with the Lord. So the body without the spirit is dead. No question about that. No question. So also, faith without works is dead. Are we convinced of that though? Are we convinced that faith without works is dead? If it's without works, then it's a dead faith. It's a worthless, useless faith. We are foolish and we are not better than the demons. That's how much we have to be convinced of it. And we have to preach it this way. And if we preach it this way, people will hear the true gospel. That is what the true grace of God does to change a dead man into a living man. A dead soul into a living soul. This is the problem. People like to tout grace and love. They love to tout kindness and mercy and say God is full of it. He is full of kindness and mercy, grace, mercy, peace. He is full of it, but it's not powerless. It's not impotent. It's almighty grace. That is the problem. And if they are saying that they have the grace of God, but it doesn't change them, they are liars. Amen. They are liars. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11. Here he explains this grace of God for salvation and sanctification, both of them. For the grace of God, Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove With all authority, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. This is the kind of true gospel that must be preached. When they preach this false grace, it's actually a blasphemous grace. It's heretical and blasphemous grace. Sometimes it's known as cheap grace and easy believism. But it's actually stronger we have to speak strong, more strongly against it. It's blasphemous because it's calling God a weakling. It's saying God's grace is not only weak because it doesn't help to overcome your sins, but God also is an endorser of your sins. He blesses it. Because one day when you die, you're going to get to heaven because nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, so we'll all get to heaven. We hope in the grace of God that way in a false way. There is a sense in which there is true grace and false grace. Peter says, 1 Peter 5.12, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 1 Peter 5.12. Let's do the same. Faith without works is dead. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.